Memphis Media Networks. This is America's First News. This morning with your host, Gordon Deal. Ceasefire progress. Good morning, I'm Gordon Deal, along with Nicole Murray. On this Tuesday, February 27th, glad you could be with us. Here's what we have for you this hour. President Biden says he expects a pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas by early next week. Congressional leaders convene at the White House today to discuss government funding to avoid a government shutdown. The Supreme Court is weighing arguments about laws in Florida and Texas that aim to regulate social media content. And how will the group of baby boomers known as Beatlemania boomers face a looming retirement crisis. It's bad timing. Um, I'm just a couple years behind that group, and I remember this. The Great Recession hobbled them, and, and what it did was it hit them right at their peak earnings years. These Beatlemania boomers were in their 40s, like 41 to 47 or 8 in 2008, 2009, 2010, and it just decimated their savings. Dan DeVise at USA Today compares the retirement savings of late boomers to that of older boomers. President Biden says he's hopeful that a ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas can take effect by early next week. The president delivered the comments spontaneously in response to questions during a visit to an ice cream shop after taping an appearance on NBC's Late Night with Seth Meyers. My national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday we'll have a ceasefire. Negotiations are underway for a weeks-long ceasefire between Israel and Hamas to allow for the release of hostages being held in Gaza by the terrorist group in return for Israel releasing hundreds of Palestinian prisoners. The proposed six-week pause in fighting would also include allowing hundreds of trucks to deliver desperately needed aid into Gaza every day. Israel's war cabinet over the weekend approved the broad terms of a deal that would involve a six-week truce for the release of about 40 hostages. An Israeli delegation is expected to meet in Qatar with intermediaries from the United States, Egypt, and Qatar. President Biden today is scheduled to meet with congressional leaders at the White House in an effort to find a funding deal for the federal government before cash runs out and there's a partial shutdown. Talks would also cover aid for Ukraine. House and Senate leaders have been working to negotiate the details of 12 funding bills totaling $1.6 trillion for federal agencies, which have been operating on temporary extensions since the end of September. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. While we've made some good progress on a number of fronts, Unfortunately, our House Republican colleagues are still struggling to figure themselves out. There's a lot of uncertainty over the, how the House will proceed in the coming days. House Speaker Mike Johnson has so far refused to bring up for a vote a package passed by the Senate that includes money for Ukraine because he is insisting on border restrictions that Democrats will not accept. Funding for the Transportation Department and several other agencies expires after March 1st which would affect some housing, food, and veterans programs. The rest expires after March 8. Meanwhile, this is the fourth time that this Congress, that members are facing a shutdown cliff. Here's Michael Schnell, Congress reporter at The Hill. Michael, what do we have? On Friday is that first of two deadlines after Speaker Johnson uh, spearheaded that laddered CR approach to funding the government. And right now there's no clear path to how we will avert, how Congress will avert uh, that partial government shutdown on Friday. Four appropriations bills are due on Friday. We have not even seen the compromise legislation for that deadline. Uh, Schumer came out with a dear colleague Sunday night, essentially saying that lawmakers had hoped to release those compromise bills on over the weekend, uh, but pinning the blame 
on Republican infighting, saying Republicans had, you know, it's clear Republicans needed to chat before we could get any of this off the finish line, uh, over the finish line. So essentially blaming Republican infighting. Speaker Johnson, though, shot back and essentially said that the reason for this holdup is because of new demands that Democrats have brought to the table and then uh, at the last you know, at the last minute of these negotiations. So we're seeing this early signs of this blame game, all of which is not a good sign for the prospects of Congress averting that partial government shutdown by Friday. All right. So if we get to the one partial government shutdown this Friday, does that sort of kick the door wide open for another one the following Friday? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would even go to say that, Gordon, this Friday deadline is is in a lighter lift for Congress. Only four appropriations bills are due on Friday. The other eight are due next week. So I think what we're looking at right now is, you know, at least a few continuing resolutions, whether that be a a continuing resolution that completely moves the two deadlines or maybe a few that that will extend funding for some of those departments and agencies. Right now, it's all up in the air, but the, the expectation that there will likely have to be at least one stopgap bill, a few stopgap bills, because again, Congress just does not have a path to averting a shutdown. We haven't even seen the compromise bills. Lawmakers need to have time to parse through the specifics of that legislation. And then there's just the issue of time and scheduling. The Senate is back in this week, but the House doesn't even return to session until Wednesday. That deadline's on Friday. That's only three voting days to get this done. And again, we don't even have the text yet. So it's a very heavy lift right now for Congress. Man, we're speaking with Michael Schnell, congressional reporter at The Hill. Her story is called Lawmakers Race to Avoid Looming Shutdown as Blame Game Begins. There's a deadline this Friday, then again another one on March 8. Uh, but some lawmakers have, have said no more continuing resolutions. Yeah, I mean, that's also what we heard in January, Gordon, when we heard Speaker Johnson even before that saying, you know, I'm done with continuing resolutions. What happened in January? Congress was up against the deadline. Their work wasn't done. We did not have those compromised bills. So another continuing resolution was passed. And look, Democrats have made clear that they don't want the government to shut down. So the like the thing is, the catch here is that any continuing resolution that passes, really, you know, any government funding bills in general because of the filibuster in the Senate will require uh, bipartisan support and bipartisan cooperation. So even if we see some Republicans now saying that they're done with continuing resolutions, there'll be enough Democrats and some Republicans in support to get this over the finish line, though that then begs the question of how uh, safe is Speaker Mike Johnson with the gavel because, of course, Republicans, we've seen them time and time again in this Congress become frustrated with the Speaker uh, for cutting spending deals with Democrats. In fact, that was the reason why former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted from the top job. How can how can this actually get done? <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, kind of, how do we get here? Yeah, million-dollar question right there, Gordon. Look, in a perfect world, what will happen is that uh, – appropriators will come to an agreement. Leaders will come to an agreement that's likely going to require Republicans from, you know, moving away from some of their conservative policy demands. Uh, We'll see those compromise bills. And then it's just a good old fashioned voting in the House and Senate. If nobody holds this thing up, you know, things could get done by the end of the week. But again, I mean, this is Congress, so nothing is ever perfect. In fact, this is the 118th Congress and nothing has really been perfect um, in this year in this, you know, these what have they been 14 months of this Congress. So what we're likely going to see is we could see a partial shutdown or we're likely going to see um, some short-term funding bills to once again kick the can down the road. Thanks, Michael. Michael Schnell, Congress reporter at The Hill. By the way, there's new video up on our social media pages called When the Mic is Off. Nicole is giving a behind-the-scenes look at the show. You can find it on Facebook or X at This Morning Show. On Instagram, it's 
at This Morning with Gordon Deal. Pure opportunity. It's what Michigan is all about. The opportunity to do more. The opportunity for all businesses to reach their full potential. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio to discover all the ways the MEDC is helping Michigan thrive. Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Tuesday. The Supreme Court may be skeptical of the laws passed by Texas and Florida to regulate big social media companies like Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and X. The justices spent nearly four hours yesterday on a case that could change the way millions of us interact with social media ahead of the presidential election. That said, the justices appeared to struggle with how to assess the huge First Amendment implications of the controversial legislation. Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Some say that, for example, TikTok might have boosted pro-Palestinian speech and reduced reduced pro-Israel speech. That's a viewpoint, right? And if you have an algorithm do it, is that not speech? In 2021, when Donald Trump was banned from Twitter after the January 6th Capitol riot and conservative activists asserted that their views were being suppressed, Florida and Texas passed laws requiring the platforms to post nearly all user content without regard to the viewpoints expressed. The laws would severely limit the ability of social media companies to kick users off their platforms or remove individual posts. 20 minutes now after the hour on This Morning. Here's Nicole Murray. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. President Biden says he hopes a six-week ceasefire between Israel and Hamas can take effect by early next week. And then we've got a, and he's a principal agreement, there'll be a ceasefire while that takes place. Ramadan's coming up and there's been an agreement by the Israelis that they would not engage in activities. The deal would also call for the release of the remaining hostages and additional humanitarian aid. Number two. President Biden will host congressional leaders at the White House today to discuss a plan to avert a government shutdown. Federal agencies have been operating on temporary extensions since September 30th. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says Congress needs to get the job done. Without action by Friday, the country would face needless disruptions to agriculture, transportation, military construction, and essential services at the VA. Government funding deadlines are March 1st and March 8th. Number three. Former President Donald Trump has begun the process of appealing the $454 million judgment against him in his New York civil fraud case. A justice determined Trump inflated his net worth to to receive tax and insurance benefits. A Kentucky wrestler has been arrested after strangling one of his younger teammates. Charles Escalera, a 21-year-old Campbellsville University student, has been charged with second-degree murder and is being held on a $2 million bond. The deceased has been identified as 18-year-old Josiah Kilman, Campbellsville University President Joseph Hopkins. This shakes us that this could happen even in this beautiful place of, uh, of, of quiet and beauty. Um, but uh, but it does it does remind us that we must always be on guard. This is the fourth death of a young person on a college campus in the last month. A female golfer was recording herself practicing her swing at a driving range when a stranger started offering some unsolicited advice. The man off camera can be heard saying, follow through and your swing is too slow. The golfer was PGA professional Georgia Ball. You don't have to pay for that, I guess. A little quick lesson from a pro, you don't have to pay. Nice. He is so lucky that he was not actually caught on camera. This has been like on Good Morning America and everything. 
Hey, it's Gordon Deal. Say goodbye to the hassle of meal prep and hello to ready-to-eat meals from Factor. With Factor, you get chef-created delights approved by dietitians. Choose from over 35 mouth-watering options each week, plus over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. Stop spending precious time cooking and cleaning. Factor offers restaurant-quality meals in two minutes. From dinners to breakfast, snacks, and smoothies, Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options. It's the convenient choice that's easier on your wallet than takeout, with flexible plans from 6 to 18 meals per week and the option to pause or reschedule deliveries. Factor fits seamlessly into your life with no prep, no mess. Ready for a week of hassle-free, delicious dining? Visit factormeals.com slash deal50 and use code deal50 to get 50% off. Again, use code deal50 at factormeals.com slash deal50 to get 50% off. Thanks for being with us. The persistence of remote work has sparked the rise of well-appointed spaces fusing work with fitness and leisure. Enter Lifetime, an upscale health club operator with over 150 domestic locations. It's a story by Javier David, managing editor at Axios. Javier, what did you look at? Well, the look here is basically uh, the way we live now after COVID-19. Many workers have gone back to the office, but many workers have not. Many of them are um, in hybrid arrangements or they're completely working remotely. Uh, that means you have a lot of people that take up spaces at coffee shops, at libraries, um, obviously their home. But um, in a lot of ways, a lot of people don't want to work exclusively from home. They have families. There are lots of distractions. Uh, maybe they live in a noisy building. And if you live in a New York City apartment like I do, um, the winter, uh, the pipes bang. You'll hear a lot of external noise, et cetera. Um, the upshot is people need a quiet space to conduct phone calls like this or to be on Zooms. Um, a lot of remote workers have a lot of meetings on their calendars on, on a daily basis, and they need spaces that are conducive to uh, basically allowing them uh, to conduct these calls and these meetings uh, in peace. Okay. So uh, along comes this company called Lifetime, and this is different from, like, say, a WeWork? It is. Um, so they're, they're both in the same sort of um, space, if you want to call it that. Uh, they're co-working companies. Lifetime's uh, value proposition is interesting because they have a space that is exclusively co-working, but they also have a whole sort of lifestyle brand, which means that there's a gymnasium. They're not attached to the same uh, space, uh, but Lifetime has in their gym like a very quiet spot where you can sit and do your work on your laptop or whatever. And then they have a formal sort of WeWork style open office co-working space that is, you know, again, separate uh, from the gymnasium. But this, in fact, is a way of capturing, again, that whole dynamic of the way we live now um, in that people, and I quoted this in the story, um, are more or less uh, looking to do the things in their leisure time that they were not able to do when they had to clock into the office um, on a daily basis from nine to five or what have you. Um, it does lifetimes, you know, thing is that it kind of facilitates the ability for people to kind of be where they are, work out where they are. You know, you can jump on a zoom and you can do your workout for half an hour, an hour or whatever, jump back into the group at work. Um, they are strategically placed. Um, in sort of wealthy suburbs. Okay. Um, I visited a couple of locations uh, here in the New York City area as well as in Miami. 
Um, and those locations are um, interesting because in and of themselves because they're located near commercial centers. So like, you know, malls and um, places where people gather, uh, it's, it's, a, it's easy for people to just kind of like seg out of a lifetime facility and mm-hmm. go right to dinner or, you know, hop on the train or be, you know, meet up with friends or go shopping or what have you. Thanks, Javier. Javier David, a managing editor at Axios. Hey, it's Gordon Deal here to tell you about this game-changing product I use before having a couple of cocktails called Z-Biotics. I can easily feel lousy from just one drink, but I've now found something that helps avoid that miserable feeling the next morning. Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink. It's the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists trying to eliminate that crummy feeling the following day. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night. Whether you're sitting down at home for movie night or maybe out with friends, drink responsibly and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/gordon to get 15% off your first order when you use Gordon at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/gordon and use the code Gordon at checkout for 15% off. Taking the day's information and helping you make sense of it all. We're here for you every morning. You're listening to America's First News. This morning with Gordon Deal. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 27. Gordon Deal with Nicole Murray. Some of our top stories and headlines. President Biden says a Middle East ceasefire and hostage release could come early next week. Congressional leaders meet today to discuss avoiding a government shutdown. FTC suing to block the merger of Kroger and Albertsons. Polls open at 7 a.m. for Michigan primary voters. The U.N. atomic watchdog says Iran reduced its stockpile of near-weapons-grade nuclear material. Record warm temps could reach Chicago and St. Louis today. And the New York City med school that's now free. That story in about 20 minutes. Well, the youngest baby boomers born in the era that spawned Beatlemania face a looming retirement crisis. Researchers at Boston College say so-called late boomers have less retirement wealth and much less retirement savings than either older boomers or war babies. Insight from Dan Divizet, personal finance reporter at USA Today. Dan, what are we learning? That people born between about 1960 and 1965, which is sort of the Beatlemania era, have a lot less retirement wealth and a lot less retirement savings than older people, the older boomers, the war babies, the silent generation, and we learn also less retirement wealth than the generations coming after them. Why that specific group of like 1960 to 65? It's bad timing. Um, I'm just a couple years behind that group, and I remember this. The Great Recession hobbled them, and, and what it did was it, it hit them right at their peak earnings years. These Beatlemania boomers were in their 40s, like 41 to 47 or 8 in 2008, 2009, 2010. And it just decimated their savings, their salary, their employment. A lot of them ended up jobless. And it hit them at the peak of their careers. That group... Um... I guess for emergencies, were they tapping all kinds of savings, including perhaps retirement savings? All sorts of bad things happened. The research from Boston College shows 
their employment rate went way down from oh. over 90% of them working to less than 80% of them working. Their retirement accounts got hit because they probably had to withdraw from them and, and stopped contributing to them in a lot of cases. Uh, their salaries obviously went down. So all the arrows went down for them and this is at a time when that's the decade your 40s when you're supposed to be really building your wealth and these folks through no fault of their own right ended up taking a huge hit mm. we're speaking with dan divise personal finance reporter at usa today his story is called meet the Beatlemania boomers they face a looming retirement crisis you did some comparisons too with uh what we call the early boomers the mid boomers the late boomers uh how do they compare yeah, this is very complex, but if, if you balance for sort of inflation and look at them at the same age group, like their mid, early mid-50s, uh, the late boomers had about, two, on average, about 280,000 in wealth. The middle boomers, uh, born in the years earlier, like the late 50s, had about 330,000, which is a lot more. And the early boomers, born after the war, had about 346,000. This is apples to apples comparisons, and it just shows how far behind the Beatlemania boomers are. Wow, that timing is really something. Um, how about What about the ripple effects of this now for these Beatlemania boomers? <laughs> I, I say in the article their problems are only beginning because if your problem is a lack of retirement wealth, when does that affect you? It affects you after you retire. And these folks, again, I'm just a couple of years younger, they're going to retire, they're retiring now. So their problems are coming in the next decade, two decades, three decades, as they have to sort of recalibrate their, their, their spending plan for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of their lives. Jeez. So that, uh, I'm just thinking out loud, that could mean moving in with their adult children, right? You have multi-generational right. homes and such to survive, it seems, maybe. Their kids, I think, are millennial age for the most part, may end up having to care for them because they may not be able to afford long-term care. Uh, there's that huge wealth transfer we, transfer we keep talking about. Boomers have the most wealth ever, ever, ever. Well, not so much with these late boomers. They don't have as much wealth to transfer. So it's, gonna, it's not just going to affect them in their golden years. It's going to affect their kids. Wow. How about the woman you profiled, that Jerry Lynn? What, she, what has she gone through? Oh, gosh, she's a, a great example of this. She's about the age that I am, a couple years younger, but she took a huge hit to her career. Uh, she was working as a, a pretty well-paid office manager, had a stable job. She lost it in 2008. It wasn't until 2011 that she picked up another really good job. She, she was sort of gigging in those intervening years, working at Applebee's, nothing against Applebee's, but she had erratic hours and wasn't picking up enough hours. So 2011, she finally was back on her feet. But I think if I remember, she didn't actually even start a retirement savings plan until after that. And so, yeah, she's behind, uh, just like a lot of us. Thanks, Dan. Dan Divise, personal finance reporter at USA Today. 20 minutes now in front of the hour on this morning, America's first news. For all the ones who get it done, Granger is always there to help. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, 24-7 support, free access to product specialists, and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Plus, they provide real-time product availability online and have sourcing specialists who can help you track down hard-to-find items. And their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call 1-800-GRANGER, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Tuesday. By the way, new video up on our social media pages called When the Mic is Off. Nicole is giving a behind-the-scenes look at the show. You can find it on Facebook or X at This Morning Show. On Instagram, it's at This Morning with Gordon Deal. Time now for the mic drop. Here's This Morning's Mike Gavin. Good morning. Well, you have a couple of stories about people doing what they have to do to get where they're going. Let's start in the air, where we'll do almost anything to get comfortable on increasingly cramped airline flights. So it's not surprising that people are trying out a new method being touted on TikTok. Multiple videos with millions of views have surfaced on the platform showing airplane passengers using the seatbelt to keep their feet up on the seat. Instead of clipping the seatbelt around their waist, travelers are wrapping the strap around their shins and ankles and clipping it into place to prevent their feet from sliding down. People who have tried it for themselves have called the seat hack life-changing, but it could also be dangerous. Multiple flight attendants also chimed in, saying that if the plane were to hit any turbulence, you would not be protected and you could go from comfy to injured very quickly. Mm. Other experts warned that having the seatbelt tightly hugging your ankles can lead to poor circulation that i can see yeah i mean i can't do this anyway there's no way i could get my my legs up well, on that seat uh in, 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 but i have to say uh when i was flying last week mm-hmm. um on the way down to my destination uh we accidentally got put into an exit row uh with all the extra we're flying frontier so no first class there and the yeah. seat's super super cramped but i mean without even realizing it maybe i booked it and didn't realize i booked it usually huh. you have to pay extra for that privilege yeah. but i was put into an extra an exit row and i I mean, I don't know if I'll ever fly regular coach ever again because <laughs> having that extra six inches uh, or eight yeah. inches or whatever it is, that was just yeah. an absolute life changer. So you, your line here said travelers are wrapping the strap around their shins and ankles. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking travelers under the age of 25 who likely have this flexibility. Yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> most of us do not have the ability no. to do this. This is a Gen Z only situation. Yeah. So my thing is uh, uh, I usually have a backpack that I jam underneath the seat in front of me, mm-hmm. and then I wedge my feet on either side of it right. for the tight fit. Because yes. I get those full body spasms when I fall asleep. <laughs> my arms fly up and smash the tray table, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm one of those guys. Yeah, so I like yeah, to yeah. like you t- so try is, to restrict myself yeah. so I don't body so, spasm. So this actually could have been for you could if you were been. flexible yeah. enough to be able to pull yeah. this off. And if you prefer to keep your feet on the ground and not in a seat belt, you might find yourself needing to get somewhere without a ride. This is not how to solve that problem. A California woman told police she stole an Amazon worker's van last week because she, quote, just needed to get back to San Jose. Palo Alto police received a call last week from an Amazon driver who said someone had stolen his van loaded with undelivered packages. The worker left his keys in the ignition and the engine running while making a delivery. As he was returning to the van, the worker saw it being driven away. Of course, Amazon vans are tracked by the company and they found the thief after she parked the vehicle at an Amazon facility 20 miles away from where she'd stolen it in San Jose. Hmm. The alleged thief is scheduled to appear in court today. She couldn't have dropped off any packages along the way? I know. That would have been nice. She went to an Amazon facility, which seems like an odd place to go if you're trying to steal a van. Maybe she thought if she did that, she'd be okay. Like, look, I returned to your van. (laughs) We're cool now and I'm going to leave. Right. You got to reduce the fine I'm about to get because (laughs) I did a couple of good deeds. Right. Perhaps. In addition to my bad deal. If she had delivered a couple packages, I think she might have gotten away with it. Right. You gotta think these things through. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. What does the future of mobility in Michigan sound like? It's the sound of new EV charging stations at our state parks. Discover all the ways MEDC is driving next-gen mobility in Michigan at michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Tuesday. A new survey finds that home prices are so high that 54% of would-be buyers 
say they earn too little to afford a house. New data from Bankrate shows rising home prices and mortgage rates are limiting how much home buyers can afford. The typical price of a home in the U.S. was $379,000 last month, up 5.1% from the same time a year earlier. With rates over 7%, the typical home buyer would need to make at least $115,000 to afford a home, according to a recent analysis by the real estate brokerage Redfin. That calculation assumes that a buyer is putting 20% down and is not spending more than 30% of their income on housing. Eight minutes now in front of the hour on this morning. Once again, here's Nicole Murray. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. The Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in a pair of social media cases regarding laws in Florida and Texas that aim to restrict social media companies from moderating content. State officials argue these platforms should be banned from from removing posts or canceling users. Tech companies say this violates their First Amendment rights. The Solicitor General of Florida, Henry Charles Whitaker, argued newspapers and social media sites are two different entities. We agree, we certainly agree that a newspaper, a book and a bookstore is engaging in inherently expressive conduct. And our whole point is that these social media platforms are not like those. Decisions on these cases are expected before July. Number two. Republican candidate Nikki Haley has urged Michigan voters to support her over former President Donald Trump and his, quote, chaos. Haley criticized Trump for his role in killing the bipartisan package that would have implemented stricter border security at a recent rally. The problem is Donald Trump told them not to pass anything because they said that we couldn't, that we needed to wait until the general election because it would hurt him in the polls. The next presidential primary will be held in Michigan today. Number three. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has asked a judge to impose a limited gag order on former President Donald Trump in his New York civil fraud case. If granted, Trump would be restricted from commenting on any jurors, prosecutors, or court staffers on the case. The trial is set to begin on March 25th. An investigation is underway after an explosive device was detonated outside the Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall's office this weekend. No one was hurt in the incident. The event occurred one day after Marshall said he won't prosecute in vitro fertilization providers or families after Alabama Supreme Court ruled embryos are considered children. A group of scientists have discovered the world's largest snake species in the Amazon. It's called the Southern Green Anaconda. It can grow to be up to 26 feet long, are the heaviest snakes in the world, and can swim. But good news, they are non-venomous. They're non-venomous. They're non-venomous. They're 26 feet long, and they're constrictor snakes, which means they... <laughs> I don't know, like, what choice if I get caught in the water? Do I want to be bit, or do I want to be constricted? Like, uh, Yeah. You think about there's that no and get winning back there. to me. Yeah, there's no winning there. Glad you're with us. Cheers and tears after a New York City medical school announced it would be tuition-free for all students from now on, thanks to a billion-dollar donation from a former professor, the widow of a Wall Street investor. Ruth Gottesman announced the gift and its purpose to students and faculty at Albert Einstein College of Medicine yesterday. The 93-year-old Gottesman had been affiliated with the college for 55 years and is chair of its board of trustees. The gift is intended to attract a diverse pool of applicants who otherwise might not have the means to attend. Tuition at Einstein is more than 59000 per year. A group called the Education Data Initiative says the average medical school debt in the U.S. is 202000 
and that does not include undergrad debt. Gottesman credited her late husband, David Gottesman, for leaving her with the financial means to make such a donation. David Gottesman built the Wall Street Investment House First Manhattan. He died in 2022 at age 96. This gift is believed to be the largest made to any medical school in the country. That'll do it for this hour. For Nicole Murray and Mike Gavin, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Morning, America's First News.